0: Chapter Seventeen Part Three of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Seventeen. The Crusades, Their Decline and End. Part Three. In the course of the year eleven eighty seven Europe suddenly heard tale upon tale about the repeated disasters of the Christians in Asia on the first of May. The two religious and warlike orders which had been founded in the East for the defence of Christendom, the Hospitallers of St. John of Jerusalem and the Templars, lost, at a brush in Galilee, five-hundred of their bravest knights. On the third and fourth of July, near Tiberias, a Christian army was surrounded by the Saracens, and also, ere long, by the fire which Saladin had ordered to be set to the dry grass which covered the plain. The flames made their way and spread beneath the feet of men and horses. There say the oriental chroniclers. The sons of paradise and the children of fire settled their terrible quarrel. Arrows hurtled in the air, like a noisy flight of sparrows, and the blood of warriors dripped onto the ground like rain-water. I saw, adds one of them who was present at the battle, "hill, plain and wally, covered with their dead, I saw their banners stained with dust and blood, I saw their heads laid low, their limbs scattered, their carcasses piled on a heap like stones. Four days after the Battle of Tiberius, on the eighth of july eleven eighty seven, Saladin took possession of Saint Jean de and on the fourth of September following of Ascalon. Finally, on the eighteenth of September he laid siege to Jerusalem, wherein refuge had been sought by a multitude of Christian families, driven from their homes by the ravages of the infidels throughout Palestine. And the holy city contained at this time, it is said, nearly one hundred thousand Christians. On approaching its walls, Saladin sent for the principal inhabitants, and said to them, I know as well as you that Jerusalem is the house of God, and I will not have it assaulted, if I can get it by peace and love. I will give you thirty thousand bisons of gold, if you promise me Jerusalem, and you shall have liberty to go, whither you will, and do your tillage, to a distance of five miles from the city. And I will have you supplied with such plenty of provisions, that in no place of earth shall they be so cheap. You shall have a truce from now to whitsuntide, and when this time comes, if you see that you may have aid, then hold on. But if not, you shall give up the city, and I will have you conveyed in safety to Christian territory, yourselves and your substance. We may not yield up to you a city where died our God, answered the envoys, and still less may we sell you. The siege lasted fourteen days. After having repulsed several assaults, the inhabitants saw that effectual resistance was impossible. And the commandant of the place, a knight named Dalian d'Ibelin, an old warrior, who had been at the Battle of Tiberias, returned to Saladin, and asked for the conditions back again, which had at first been rejected. Saladin, pointing to his own banner, already planted upon several parts of the battlements answered, "'It's too late. You surely see that the city is mine.' Very well, my lord, replied the knight, we will ourselves destroy our city, and the mosque of Omar, and the stone of Jacob, and when it is nothing but a heap of ruins, we will sally forth with sword and fire in hand, and not one of us will go to paradise without having sent ten Muslims to hell. Saladin understood enthusiasm, and respected it. And to have had the destruction of Jerusalem connected with his name would have caused him deep displeasure. He therefore consented to the terms of capitulation demanded of him. The fighting men were permitted to retreat to Tyre or Tripolis, the last cities of any importance, besides Antioch, in the power of the Christians. And the simple inhabitants of Jerusalem had their lives preserved, and permission given them, to purchase their freedom on certain conditions. But as many amongst them could not find the means, Malek Athel, the Sultan's brother, and Saladin himself paid the ransom of several thousands of captives. All Christians, however, with the exception of Greeks and Syrians, had orders to leave Jerusalem within four days. When the day came, all the gates were closed, except that of David, by which the people were to go forth. And Saladin, seated upon a throne, saw the Christians defile before him. First came the patriarch, followed by the clergy, carrying the sacred vessels, and the ornaments of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. After him came Sibylla, queen of Jerusalem, who had remained in the city, whilst her husband, Guy de Lusignan, had been a prisoner at Neblus, "'since the Battle of Tiberias. "'Saladin saluted her respectfully, "'and spoke to her kindly. "'He had too great a soul "'to take pleasure in the humiliation of greatness. "'The news, spreading through Europe, "'caused amongst all classes there, high and low, "'a deep feeling of sorrow, anger, disquietude, and shame. "'Jerusalem was a very different thing from Edessa.' The fall of the kingdom of Jerusalem meant the sepulchre of Jesus Christ fallen once more into the hands of the infidels, and at the same time the destruction of what had been wrought by Christian Europe in the East, the loss of the only striking and permanent gauge of her victories. Christian pride was as much wounded as Christian piety. A new fact, moreover, was conspicuous in this series of reverses, and in the accounts received of them. After all its defeats, and in the midst of its discord, Islamry had found a chieftain and a hero. Saladin was one of those strange and superior beings, who by their qualities and by their very defects make a strong impression upon the imaginations of men, whether friends or foes. His Muslim fanaticism was quite as impassioned as the Christian fanaticism, of the most ardent crusaders. When he heard that Reginald of Châtillon, lord of Karat, on the confines of Palestine and Arabia, had all but succeeded in an attempt to go and pillage the Kaaba and the tomb of Mahomet, he wrote to his brother Malek at Hel, at that time governor of Egypt. The infidels have violated the home and the cradle of Islamism, They have profaned our sanctuary. Did we not prevent a like insult, which God forbid, we should render ourselves guilty in the eyes of God and the eyes of men. Purge we, therefore, our land from these men who dishonor it. Purge we the very air from the air they breathe. He commanded that all the Christians who could possibly be captured on this occasion should be put to death and many were taken to Mecca, where the Muslim pilgrims immolated them instead of the sheep and lambs they were accustomed to sacrifice. The expulsion of the Christians from Palestine was Saladin's great idea and unwavering passion, and he severely chid the Muslims for their soft-heartedness in the struggle. Behold these Christians, he wrote to the Caliph of Baghdad, how they come crowding in How aimlessly they press on! They are continually receiving fresh reinforcements, More numerous than the waves of the sea, And to us more bitter than its brackish waters. Where one dies by land, A thousand can by sea. The crop is more abundant than the harvest, The tree puts forth more branches than the axe can lop off. It is true that great numbers have already perished, insomuch that the edge of our swords is blunted. But our comrades are beginning to grow weary of so long a war. Haste we, therefore, to implore the help of the Lord. Nor needed he the excuse of passion in order to be cruel and sanguinary, when he considered it would serve his cause. For human lives and death he had that barbaric indifference, which Christianity alone had rooted out, from the communities of men, whilst it has remained familiar to the Mussulman. When he bound himself, either during or after a battle, confronted by enemies whom he really dreaded, such as the Hospitallers of St. John of Jerusalem or the Templars, he had them massacred, and sometimes gave them their death blow himself with cool satisfaction. But apart from open war, and the hatred inspired by passion or cold calculation, he was moderate and generous, gentle towards the vanquished and the weak, just and compassionate towards his subjects, faithful to his engagements, and capable of feeling sympathetic admiration for men, even his enemies, in whom he recognized superior qualities, courage, loyalty, and loftiness of mind, For Christian knighthood, its precepts and the noble character it stamped upon its professors, he felt so much respect, and even inclination, that the wish of his heart, it is said, was to receive the title of knight, and that he did, in fact, receive it, with the approval of Richard Gordelayen. By reason of all these facts, and on all these grounds, he acquired, even amongst the Christians, that popularity which attaches itself to greatness justified by personal deeds and living proofs in spite of the fear and even the hatred inspired thereby christian europe saw in him the able and potent chief of mussulman asia and whilst detesting admired him after the capture of jerusalem by saladin the christians of the east in their distress Sent to the west their most eloquent prelate and gravest historian, William, Archbishop of Tyre, who fifteen years before, in the reign of Baldwin the Fourth, had been Chancellor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He, accompanied by a legate of Pope Gregory the Eighth, scored Italy, France, and Germany, recounting everywhere the miseries of the Holy Land, and imploring the aid of all Christian princes and peoples whatever might be their own position of affairs, and their own quarrels in Europe. At a Parliament assembled at Guissours on the 21st of January, 1188, and at a Diet convoked at Mayence on the 27th of March following, he so powerfully affected the knighthood of France, England, and Germany, that the three sovereigns of these three states, Philip Augustus, Richard Cordelaine, And Frederick Barbarossa engaged with acclamation in a new crusade. They were princes of very different ages and degrees of merit, but all three distinguished for their personal qualities as well as their puissance. Frederick Barbarossa was sixty seven, and for the last thirty six years had been leading in Germany and Italy as politician and soldier. A VERY ACTIVE AND STORMY EXISTENCE. RICHARD CORDELINE WAS THIRTY-ONE, AND HAD BUT JUST ASCENDED THE THRONE, WHERE HE WAS TO SHINE, AS THE MOST VALIANT AND ADVENTUROUS OF KNIGHTS, RATHER THAN AS A KING. PHILIP AUGUSTUS, THOUGH ONLY TWENTY-THREE, HAD ALREADY SHOWN SIGNS, BENEATH THE VIVACIOUS SALLIES OF YOUTH, OF THE REFLECTIVE AND STEADY ABILITY, CHARACTERISTIC OF RIPER AGE of these three sovereigns, the eldest, Frederick Barbarossa, was first ready to plunge amongst the perils of the crusade. Starting from Ratisbon about Christmas, 1189, with an army of 150,000 men, he traversed the Greek Empire and Asia Minor, defeated the Sultan of Iconium, passed the first defiles of Taurus, and seemed to be approaching the object of his voyage. When, on the 10th of June, 1190, having arrived at the borders of the Selef, a small river which throws itself into the Mediterranean, close to solochia he determined to cross it by fording, was seized with a chill, and, according to some, drowned before his people's eyes, but, according to others, carried dying to solochia where he expired." His young son, Conrad, Duke of Swabia, was not equal to taking the command of such an army, and it broke up. The majority of the German princes returned to Europe, and there remained beneath the banner of Christ only a weak band of warriors, faithful to their woe, a boy chief and a bier. When the crusaders of the other nations, assembled before St. Jean of saw the remnant of that grand German army arrive. Not a soul could restrain his tears. Three thousand men, all but stark naked, and harassed to death, marched sorrowfully along, with the dried bones of their emperor carried in a coffin. For in the twelfth century the art of embalming the dead was unknown. Barbarossa, before leaving Europe, had asked, that if he should die in the crusade, he might be buried in the church of the resurrection at Jerusalem. But this wish could not be accomplished, as the Christians did not recover the holy city, and the mortal remains of the emperor were carried, as some say, to Tyre, and, as others, to Antioch, where his tomb has not been discovered. End of chapter 17, part 3